Jeremiah chapter 51. Tonight, Sunday nights, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we'll look to finish uh, the book of Jeremiah this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, you will be fairly lost without a Bible. And uh, so men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Wave to them. They'll put one in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage this evening. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that a Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you uh, tonight. We remember as we are in this final section of the book of Jeremiah, really chapters 46 through 51, uh, Jeremiah, there's the record of a series of prophecies that Jeremiah gave out through the course of uh, his uh, ministry uh, directed to uh, warnings to the nations that surrounded the nation of Israel. He was a prophet to the nations. God had declared him uh, that uh, when he began his uh, initial ministry, and we see uh, the proof of it here in this collection of prophecies at the end uh, of the book. And he is ending this series of warnings to the nations with a, a, uh, a warning of judgment and a, a promise of judgment really against the Babylonian uh, empire for two principal reasons. Number one, their own idolatry. And I'll return to it even though I've said it a number of times. What haven't I said a number of times in the book of Jeremiah? But uh, the fact that uh, God does not, uh, uh, sin is serious, and it's serious business, and it's an affront to him. Uh, We live our lives in his living room. We live our lives in his house in the same way that a parent isn't going to put up with all manner of nonsense in their home. Uh, The head of the household isn't going to do that. The same way with God. And I mean, every illustration breaks down, but uh, God isn't in some faraway place and that the earth belongs to us and uh, he has no part in it. And and heaven is his, you know, kind of uninterrupted domain and that we've got the earth and, and uh, until he takes it back at the end of the age. Now, it all belongs to him, and uh, sin is still uh, 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 sin, and it is still serious business, and it is still uh, greatly frowned upon by God, whether it's committed by God's people or whether it's committed by people who don't believe in God at all uh, or believe in the idols of the world. So he was uh, judging them for their own sin and their own idolatry, and also because while God used them, as an instrument of judgment against the southern kingdom of Judah, that they really did go way too far uh, in their uh, their, uh, judgment and in their treatment of uh, of, uh, uh, of Judah when they went in and conquered uh, Jerusalem. And they uh, really, really created some significant uh, problems overstepping those bounds. We get a glimpse of it. I was reading just this week in my devotional time uh, in a glimpse of all of this, what they did in the conquest of Judah and also Jerusalem from Psalm 137. And the psalmist writes, Remember, O Lord, and here is the uh, children of Israel heading off into captivity, the Babylonian captivity. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundations. And then the psalmist declared, O daughter of Babylon, uh, who are to be destroyed, happy uh, the one who repays you as you have served us, happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. And the idea is that that's what the Babylonians did to the children uh, of the Jews who were in Jerusalem at the time of the conquest, greatly exceeding whatever God uh, intended them to 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 do in chastening the nation, and so uh, the twofold reasons for um, for the judgment. We pick up in uh, verse 45 uh, as God speaks to Babylon and, and to the Jewish people uh, in captivity uh, there in Babylon. Speaking of Babylon's fall, they're going to fall to the Medes and the Persians as we saw last week. And now the exhortation that in Babylon's fall that uh, my people, speaking of the Jewish people who were captive there, go out from the midst of her, seize the moment to get free, and let everyone deliver himself from the fierce uh, anger uh, of the Lord. And lest your heart faint and you fear for the rumor that will be heard in the land, a rumor will come one year and after that, and then another year a rumor will come, and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. When Nebuchadnezzar died, uh, 
as the head of the Babylonian Empire, there was a series of rumors that were spreading through uh, the, the Jewish captives uh, there in Babylon and other captives as well. There was, uh, you know, palace intrigue that goes on anytime there's the, uh, the loss of a person in that position. And so these rumors would go around saying that this will be it. This is going to be the fall of, of Babylon, or this is going to be the, the circumstance that develops that allows us uh, to go back to our homeland and God is basically saying, don't listen to all of these rumors that are going back and forth. Listen to what I have to say uh, to you. And what I have to say to you is not a rumor. Uh, You will be uh, set free at the time of the destruction of Babylon and then uh, seize the moment to return to the land. And therefore, behold, the days are coming that I bring judgment on the carved images of Babylon. Again, God uh, didn't like their idolatry. He doesn't like it anywhere, not then, not now. Her whole land shall be ashamed, and all her slain shall fall in her midst. And then at the fall of Babylon, the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing joyously over Babylon, for the plunder shall come to her from the north, uh, says uh, the Lord. And so her defeat is going to be a cause of, of joy uh, in heaven. As Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall, uh, so at Babylon the slain of all the earth shall fall. Uh, you who have escaped the sword, again speaking of the Jewish captives that were in Babylon, uh, you have escaped the sword, you have survived the, uh, the, the battles and the siege of Babylon and gone into captivity, but now you've lived to see this day. Get away. Do not stand still. Remember the Lord afar off and let Jerusalem come to your mind. That's how they were to process the news in the light of God. And that is, okay, this thing is falling. A door is going to open for us to escape. And we need to seize that moment uh, to do so. And then in verse 51, really very powerful, uh, the, um, the, the, the cry of the Jewish people to God, we are ashamed because we have heard reproach. Shame has covered our faces, uh, for strangers have come uh, into the sanctuaries of the Lord's house. It is impossible uh, for, uh, I assume that most of us in this room tonight are Gentiles, and we are separated uh, from the Jewish temple uh, by uh, thousands of years at this particular point. But we can, we can make an effort to try and understand, but we will never understand and nobody can communicate it. Uh, to put into words the shame that the Jews ultimately felt, that generation, at the destruction of the temple and the loss of the temple. Once they get in, went into Babylonian captivity, we all understand this related to sin in our life, um, but when they went into the Babylonian captivity and they're moved away from their kind of spiritual insanity and so forth, and they begin to realize how far away they had moved away from God, they had forced God to judge them, and then as the full weight of the consequences of their sin fall on them, they realize they are going to be known forever I mean, in terms of human history, known forever as the generation of God's people who chose their own sin and idolatry and rebellion against God over the temple. You are the generation that lost the temple. We have nothing in the Christian faith uh, with which uh, I can say, well, the temple meant uh, this to them in the same way this means uh, uh, the same to us as Christians. The temple represented the very presence of God. It was the holiest place in the world in uh, Judaism as a result of that. In the New Testament, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not a, a concentrated situation. It would be like the wiping out of the body of Christ in the entire uh, world. Uh, that's how, the ca- how catastrophic it was to them. And then uh, the, the shame of shames as they watched it while they were being taken captive to Babylon out of Jerusalem to see these Babylonian soldiers walking through the grounds of the temple, walking into the holy place, walking into the very holy of holies and looting it. I mean, the Holy of Holies was the place that where only one man 
uh, went on one day out of the year. Only the high priest went in there, and he only went in when a sacrifice for his own sin had been uh, sacrificed. And here this place now is being trodden underfoot by these Babylonian soldiers, and they're looting it. They're taking away all of the gold, all of the furnishings, all the everything, and then when it dawns on them that all of that happened as bad as we've been in the history of the Jewish people. And they had had their ups and downs as we've been uh, through the Old Testament, as you very well know. Uh, This was as low as it could go. This happened on our watch. And God records the shame that they felt over that. Uh, And yet, uh, the beauty of of it being uh, described here, and yet we know that God also had grace for even so great a sin as that. God had a future and a hope for them. And what it speaks to us, I don't know about you, but I think I, I can't say it's true of everyone. But I would say a good portion of us in this room have something or some things related to our past that we are deeply ashamed of. And at the moment that we were committing these things and doing these things under the intoxication of whatever it might be, sin or uh, self-deception, it was only later when we bore the consequences of it or God put us in a place that was quiet enough for us to realize what in the world we have done to God and we have done to others. And the greatness of the shame that comes upon us and the only one who can break in that and infuse any kind of hope into our lives under the under the weight of the condemnation and the shame is some voice of God, some promise of God. And, and despite the depth of their shame and the greatness of their failure, uh, in all of human history, uh, it's recorded, God still had a future, he had a hope for them, he had grace and he had forgiveness, and perhaps I'm saying that uh, to give hope to someone uh, here tonight in the greatness of the grace of God. Uh, God's grace is greater than all of our sin, and for that we are thankful. For strangers, verse 51, have come into the sanctuaries of the Lord's house. I mean, this is mortifying to the Jew to read that verse. And therefore the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring judgment on her carved images and, uh, uh, and throughout all her land, the wounded shall groan, though Babylon were to mount up to heaven, as he continues his denunciation uh, of Babylon, and though she were to fortify the height of her strength, yet from me uh, uh, plunders uh, would come to her, says the Lord. And so God is saying when he defeats Babylon and and she is ultimately plundered as well, uh, her idols and her wealth and her power will be no match uh, for God. (laughs) To pick a fight with God is to pick a fight that we can never, ever win. And then in verse uh, 54, the sound of a cry comes from Babylon and great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans because the Lord is plundering Babylon and silencing her loud voice, uh, though her waves roar like great waters and the noise of their voices uttered because the plunder comes against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men are taken, every one of their bows is broken for the Lord is the God of recompense, he will surely repay. And I will make drunk her princes and wise men, her governors, uh, her deputies, and her mighty men, and they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad walls of Babylon that we've spoken about in the past, and they're magnificently high and and, uh, deep, 310 uh, feet high, according to uh, ancient uh, historian, uh, 80 feet wide, and these will uh, be uh, utterly broken and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The people will labor in vain and the nations because of the fire and they shall be weary. So uh, God speaks uh, hope 
in the face of the shame of, of that generation of, of Jews uh, taken captive in uh, Jerusalem, and he speaks that hope to them within the context of his coming judgment upon Babylon. And what he's communicating to the Jews there is a great lesson for us as well, and that is uh, the future is not, he's saying, here is, is Babylon still in all of its greatness? It looks like it's going to be, uh, you know, uh, unconquerable for a thousand years and yet it's going to be conquered in 70 years and uh, God is saying that uh, the future is uh, not with Babylon it's not uh, the future is not with any kingdom of this world the future is always with God's people uh, history as the old saying goes is his story and his story is about his people and his plan of redemption uh, in the world and then verse 15 the word which Jeremiah the prophet uh, commanded uh, Sarah, uh, uh, the son of Neriah, the son of uh, Masiah, too many vows, I'm telling you. What were they thinking? When he went uh, with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign, and Sariah was the quartermaster. And so Jeremiah wrote in a book all of the evil uh, and judgment that would come upon Babylon, and all of these words that were written, uh, and all these words that were written against Babylon. So uh, it, it, here is uh, Jeremiah. He is in Jerusalem. He writes down all of these prophets that were being made against Babylon by the Spirit of God. They're written down. They're sent uh, by this messenger, Sariah, uh, who was the brother of Baruch, who was uh, Jeremiah's uh, secretary. He gave them to Sariah to take to Babylon and then to read it to uh, the captives there. And so the letter we know historically was sent in 593 B.C., and, uh, and by that time, uh, two groups of Jews had already been taken captive. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar cap captured uh, Jerusalem three times. Two time, uh, groups of captives had already been taken to Babylon. Uh, Zedekiah was apparently, you know, the final king of, of, uh, of Judah before they went in, were finally defeated and ultimately defeated by the Babylonians. He'd probably been called to Babylon to bring tax money and tribute money and so forth, and, uh, and, and a pledge of loyalty to Babylonian uh, sovereignty and so forth. And Sariah went with him as kind of his secretary or his, uh, his quartermaster. And so he's instructed to take these prophecies to Babylon and then to declare these prophecies against Babylon to the Jewish audience so that they would know what the future was going to be in, in terms of that Babylonian captivity. And again, infusing hope. You won't be here forever. You will return to the land because you're in the midst of learning uh, the lessons related to why you ended up in, in captivity uh, altogether. Uh, uh, Sarah, when he came, went to Babylon to speak these prophecies, he probably didn't get a bunch of, you know, all the Jews together, thousands of Jews there in the city, and then pronounce these things. That would have made it dangerous for the Jews and certainly dangerous for Sarah. So he uh, probably uh, uh, directed it to kind of a carefully selected uh, witnesses among uh, the Jews. And so uh, here, uh, Jeremiah said to Sariah, verse 61, uh, when you arrive in Babylon and you see the city, then read all of these words, these words that we've just been reading, and then you shall say, uh, O Lord, he's going to pray in front of the people as he's declared these things, O Lord, you have spoken against this place to cut it off so that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but it shall be desolate forever. And now it shall be, as Jeremiah instructs him, when you finished reading the book, that you shall then tie a stone around it, wrap a stone around it, and then throw it out into uh, the Euphrates River. And so we see another picture of something that is very common in the book of Jeremiah, a kind of a action sermon. And basically he's read all of these uh, prophecies that are essentially declaring Babylon is sunk. And so then he takes the prophecies puts a rock around him, throws him in the Euphrates, again to communicate the same thing physically, that Babylon uh, is uh, sunk. Um, 
And then you shall say, thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Now, it is interesting. You remember when Jeremiah was prophesying to the Jewish people in Jerusalem that he was constantly being accused of treason, that he was being unpatriotic to the Jewish people because he was calling on the Jewish people to surrender to the Babylon. Babylonians, that this really, uh, who you're up against is not the Babylonians, you're up against God, and he's judging your sin. And so they said, oh, you're trying to dishearten us, you're not a true Jew, you're not a true Israelite, and, and uh, accused him of treason and so forth. And uh, of course, nothing at all, uh, none of it was true at all. And we certainly see it in, in, in this end of these prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, all he did all of his life, he didn't pick sides, he didn't choose sides. He was called to do what a prophet does, and that is uh, to look at a particular situation, be in the middle of a particular circumstance, and then God tells him to say, or her, to say something about that situation, and they do it. And so when it was God wanted to speak against the people of Judah because of their sin, then he gave prophecies to Jeremiah to denounce that. But then when the day came, for, for Jeremiah to denounce the sin uh, and the excessiveness and the idolatry of Babylon. And God gave him prophecies related to that. He then took and he spoke those things uh, to Babylon. Remember when uh, Jerusalem fell. Nebuchadnezzar was uh, uh, treated Jeremiah very, very well because he had heard about his prophetic ministry in calling people to surrender. And yet, despite all of the good treatment by Nebuchadnezzar, you can come back to Babylon, I'll take care of you the rest of your life in, in wealth and, and abundance, or you can stay in the land of Judah. You do whatever you want. I will uh, accommodate that for you. And yet, when the time came that Jeremiah had to then speak against Babylon, he did it. No respecter of persons at all uh, in his ministry. And the accusation that was brought against him for decades in his public ministry that he was a traitor because he spoke against the nation, uh, all of that uh, really demonstrated is absolutely false here uh, in, in the, the end uh, of, uh, of the book. And so uh, we come then into chapter 51, or 52 rather, and uh, it, it, chapter 52 is a section that deals once again with the last days of Jerusalem. It's kind of a recap of, of what we've already studied. So let's just read verse 21. Just kidding. You know me better than that. So, uh, so why does God do that? Got a kick out of that, did you? So why does God do that? And the reason he does it here is that, again, God is going to close the book out uh, with a vindication of uh, the, the single greatest prophecy that Jeremiah uh, gave, and that was that Jerusalem would fall into the hands of the Babylonians. So basically the chapter is a vindication of, uh, uh, and an amen to the whole, uh, uh, you know, prophetic ministry of Jeremiah, and, it, and it's put in place in order to uh, remind us of that. And Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. Zedekiah was the king, the last king of Judah uh, at the time that uh, Jerusalem fell. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatol, uh, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he, al he also did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. Jehoiakim was his older brother who had been a king for a very short period of time. I think about three months before, uh, before uh, Zedekiah became uh, king, both of them were uh, awful people, awful human beings, and bore tremendous responsibility for the collapse of the nation. And he, uh, again, verse 2, he also did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah till he finally cast them out 
from his uh, presence. And so uh, the wickedness of these kings and the nation itself brought the judgment of God. And then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. He decided instead of surrendering, you remember, that he was going to put a confederation of kings together and we will uh, take uh, Babylon on and win. It was a disastrous decision. It was a violation of what uh, God was commanding them to do. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day uh, of uh, the month. Uh, Again, this kind of thing always uh, cracks me up when people talk uh, about the fact that the Bible is is just fiction. It's all fables. It doesn't read uh, like a fable to me when it's giving you this kind of detail in terms of of history. It came to pass in the tenth year of his reign in the tenth month on the tenth day of the month that Nebuchadnezzar, yes, a historical figure, king of Babylon, Zedekiah, a historical figure as well, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it, and they built a siege wall against it all around. In ancient warfare, what would happen is when an army would come up against a walled city, Jerusalem was a walled city, is they would build a a smaller wall all the way around the city. Those of you who have been uh, to Israel and been up to the top of Masada, and you look all the way down, uh, the Romans didn't build a solid wall all the way around Masada as they kind of laid siege to it, but they set these encampments up every so far, uh, every bit of a distance, and then they put uh, troops in between those encampments, and the idea of putting a wall up, this is a physical wall that was put in place, was to keep any kind of food or water coming into the city as they were uh, besieging it uh, in order to capture anyone that was trying to come out and uh, flee from the city. And basically, the ancient cities were conquered by uh, starving people to death. They were very patient about warfare. There was nothing in the media where I thought, oh, come on, 18 months, do something, please. Uh, you know, we need something else to report on. Uh, this siege of Jerusalem it takes a full 18 months. They would show up, they'd build a wall around it, they'd shut off all of the water and all of the food, and then they would just wait for people to eat all of that food, drink all of that water, Ultimately, you would become malnourished and emaciated, uh, disease and plague would then uh, fill the population, and, and, uh, and those that survived all of that would be in such a weak condition that they couldn't fight except for a very small number of soldiers that they would keep well fed, so that when, ultimately when they would bring the siege works against the wall to break down the wall, they would come in and find uh, people who were uh, virtually incapable of trying to defend the city. This was the method. People, more people always died of the famine and starvation prior to the actual breach of the city walls than were usually ever killed in the battle uh, itself. And so this was a standard methodology in the ancient world. The siege wall was built uh, 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 against the, the city of Jerusalem all around. And so the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah by the fourth month on the ninth day day of the month. Again, a a total period. If you want to do the math on it, I've done it for you. uh, So I I don't lose you for the rest of the study. It is a period of 18 months. And then as we've said here, the famine then had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Uh, And then, and the idea there in verse 7, then, then and only then, then uh, they would uh, broke the city wall through and all of the men of war fled and went out of the city by night. Uh, those that, you know, had been kept somewhat fed as a, a defense force, they had the ability to flee and they fled out by the way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around and they went out by way of the plain. They are making a mad dash across what is known as the Judean wilderness. They are heading out toward uh, the area of the Dead Sea, so that a very remote area, thinking the Chaldeans won't follow us there. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, which is kind of about halfway toward, uh, toward that uh, uh, that uh, wilderness and that desert place uh, uh, associated with uh, the dead, uh, dead Sea. And all of his 
army was uh, scattered from him. And so they took the king, they brought him up to the king of Babylon, uh, who was in uh, Riblah, uh, uh, kind of overseeing the battle and the aftermath of it in the land of Hamath, and Nebuchadnezzar pronounced judgment on Zedekiah, and then is, uh, and the judgment took this form. Uh, the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he killed the princes of uh, Judah in uh, Riblah, all of those that had ruled with Zedekiah, and then he put out the eyes of Zedekiah. This is, uh, I've never um, seen, I don't even, uh, it's, it's hard for me to talk about uh, even having like any kind of an eye surgery, laser surgery or things like that. I know people have them with great results and I think it's wonderful. I may even do it someday, but I think you'll see me wearing glasses that are like Coke bottles before I ever let anybody do anything with my eye. I don't know what would be involved in gouging a person's eye out. I just... I don't ever want to know what that looks like or what it takes or what's behind it or anything. But that's, uh, that's what they did. Uh, war was, it was and is very, very serious business. And this was a uh, kind of the, uh, a, uh, an expression of how infuriated Nebuchadnezzar was with Zedekiah. Again, he was conquering Jerusalem for the third time. They kept pulling this thing. He'd been fairly gracious the first two times, and now he's just going to pull out all of the stops. He kills his sons before his eyes, uh, very eyes, and then he gouges out his eyes, so that will be his last memory of what he has seen in life. And, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, with the, kind of the ruthlessness of the age, and, and that age is still present today around the world, uh, this is what he uh, did uh, to him. It is fascinating in the book of Ezekiel that it declared concerning Zedekiah, uh, a prophecy was given concerning him that uh, one day he would be taken to Babylon, but he would not see it. And you read the prophecy in Ezekiel without Jeremiah, uh, his insight, and you think, how in the world can you go to Babylon and not see it? Well, you go to Babylon and not see it if Nebuchadnezzar gouges your eyes out in, in Riblah, uh, exactly as, uh, as is recorded, uh, you know, uh, the prophecy given is uh, as unlikely as it seemed when as Ezekiel uh, gave it here. Uh, here it is fulfilled uh, in, in human history. And then the king of Babylon bound him in bronze uh, fetters, took him to Babylon, and uh, put him in prison until the day of his death. Now in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, which is the 19th year of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, uh, which was uh, the, uh, the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard who served the king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem and uh, he burned the house of the Lord, that is the temple. He went in, in Nebuchadnezzar just obviously saying, we are not coming back here. Uh, we've been gracious to these people twice and all they do is just rebel against us again and we have to mobilize an army, bring it halfway across the world to crush them again and so let's destroy everything. And they began by burning down uh, the temple and uh, first things first and then in terms of humi uh, humiliating them and then the king's house his palace all of uh, the homes of Jerusalem that is all of the houses of the great uh, he burned with fire and all uh, the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard they broke down all of the walls of Jerusalem all around and so they said we're not doing this again if you bring us back we are not going to lay siege to these walls of the city again. We have a simple solution to this. We will tear down the entire wall that surrounds the city of uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, we will make you incapable of defending yourself ever again to remove the temptation to rebel uh, ever again. And so there in verse 14, now the city is left in a ruin, uh, the walls are all torn down, and these are the very walls that are going to await uh, Nehemiah many years later when he returns to the land uh, to rebuild the walls of the city uh, of, of Jerusalem to give us a sense of the larger picture. And then yet Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poor people and the rest of the people who remained uh, in the city. 
and also they took away the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon uh, during the siege, and then also uh, the rest of the craftsmen that remain in the city and hadn't been taken in the other two captivities. But Nebuzaradan, and the captain of the guard, left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. Uh, it was actually kind of a, I mean, it's a sad thing, but it was pretty good duty if you survived all of this and you were a poor person, and here's the destruction and all, but you're being left in the land. And again, uh, uh, to go to Israel is to realize, even as a Gentile from Modesto, uh, what is a Christian uh, Jerusalem means, how you long to return to it or get to it to, to begin with. Uh, and then for the Jews here, though poor, not to be deported from the land and basically they could live in any house that hadn't been destroyed that they wanted to live in, continue the orchards and, and, and so forth. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't want the land to fall into complete uh, disarray and, and unproductivity-wise because he wanted to still tax it and so forth. And so they were left there for that purpose. The bronze pillars now, as there's a description of the uh, furnishings that are uh, being uh, uh, dealt with here uh, the, in, in, in conquering the city now. Uh, remember, when they, when they uh, the first two times that they conquered Jerusalem, they went in and took all of the gold, and they took all of the silver, almost all of it. Uh, they took everything that was valuable and fairly lightweight in terms of value and so forth. They stripped all of, all of that away. Now this third time they come in and they decide we're going to take everything, every little thing that you have, and we're going to take every big thing that you have. Uh, bronze was a valuable metal in those days, and so here are these gigantic bronze articles that were used in the worship of the Lord at the temple, and uh, he says, uh, I'm going to take the bronze now. You've, you've got me bronze angry. Uh, I'm going to strip you of everything uh, of wealth here. Uh, but these the various furnishings were so large that they, uh, that was one of the reasons they weren't taken in the first two captivities. They were so large that they would have needed to be busted up to be transported. Now he's in a busting up mood, and, uh, and that's what he's going to do. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord, the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the lords, the Chaldeans broke in pieces, and they carried all of their bronze to Babylon. The Bronze Sea, you might remember when we were in the law, uh, this is a huge kind of, of picture, a gigantic bird bath, and it sat upon the, you know, the 12 oxen and so forth, uh, absolutely gigantic. And uh, these, uh, the carts and the Bronze Sea, they were used for the ceremonial washing of the priests and also of the sacrifices. But they were large, they were, they were heavy, but they said, no, we're going, to, we're going to break all of this up and take the bronze with us as well. Got to pay for this army that we sent uh, hundreds of miles to do this uh, business. They also then took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the bowls, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils uh, with which the priests ministered. The basins, the fire pans, the bowls, the lampstands, the spoons, the cups, and whatever uh, was solid gold and whatever was solid silver, the captain of the guard took. Actually, in kind of the graciousness of, of the Babylonians, they had left all of these instruments with the priests to continue their priestly duties. Uh, they had survived being pillaged in the first two, uh, uh, two captivities or, uh, uh, or, or conquests, but now uh, he's, they're going to strip away every single little thing. The two pillars, uh, the, the one sea, the 12 bronze bulls which were under it, and the carts, which King Solomon had made uh, for the house of the Lord. The bronze of all of these articles was beyond measure. You couldn't even weigh it. It was just so much bronze. And now concerning the pillars, you're going to get a little insight into the pillars associated with the temple that were uh, broken and taken. The height of just uh, one of the pillars was 18 cubits, 27 uh, feet high. Uh, a measuring line of 12 cubits could measure its circumference. It had a circumference of 18 feet feet. Its hollowness was four fingers, or its thickness was four fingers. It was hollow, so about that kind of a, a depth to it, four inches or so in terms of 
of how it was how it was made not solid uh, bronze a capital of bronze then sat on top of the pillar and the height of one capital was uh, five cubits another seven and a half feet the total height of it was 34 uh, and, a, and a half feet and uh, the uh, the it speaks of the ornateness and the and the casting that was involved in in making this capital of bronze uh, it, it had a network of pomegranates all around uh, the capital all of bronze the second pillar with pomegranates was the same there were 96 pomegranates on each side all of the pomegranates uh, uh, all around on the network were 100 so highly ornate uh, a tremendous um, uh, expression of the creativity of God's people when they still cared about God when these things were being made now all of them are being lost to a later by, by virtue of the folly of a later generation uh, who uh, who didn't care enough about God to even not only keep themselves from going into captivity but also these uh, these uh, things that uh, were associated with the temple the captain of the guard uh, took Sariah the chief priest Zephaniah the second priest and uh, and three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war, seven men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, uh, the principal scribe of the army who mustered the people of the land to battle, uh, the 60 men of the people of the land uh, who were found in the midst of the city. This seems like he gathers up 60 men who are kind of a cross representative of the, uh, of the soldiers who had fought uh, as Jews against Babylon. They're gathered together as they were found. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And then the king of Babylon struck them, put them to death at Riblah uh, in the land of Hamath. And thus Judah was carried away captive uh, from its own uh, land. It certainly give you pause, wouldn't it? Before you know, you, every time I read all of these things, I get very practical on on uh, certain things, just how uh, how I process life. But it certainly makes you pause and think about um, who you want to work for, uh, or you know, hey, wow, there's this cushy government job. You know, wow, can you tell me about the man or woman that heads that department? Uh, or heads that nation or whatever because uh, if these people are goofy and they're out and out sinners and judgment is going to come upon them, uh, the first thing they're going to do is wipe out uh, uh, the ungodly person, leader, but then they're going to go in and wipe everyone out that's associated with them uh, as well. And so, you know, to give that some thought. Um, so... I don't know if that helps you at all in any way, uh, but these are things that I think about. So uh, that's why I don't have a boss here. I, I do, but I mean, it's, it's, uh, I work with nice people around here. Uh, these are the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive. And so uh, uh, the, three, uh, uh, the three times of the conquest of Jerusalem, here's the number of captives that were taken each one of those three conquests. In the seventh year, the first uh, defeat of the conquest of, of Jerusalem, 3,023 Jews were taken. In the 18th year, the second conquest, 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem. 832 persons in the third year of uh, thir- uh, 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar this final conquest uh, Nebuchadnezzar the captain of the guard carried away captive of the Jews 745 persons all the persons were 4,600 and so here you have the total of the exiles for uh, each of Nebuchadnezzar's three uh, deportations. These numbers do differ here in Jeremiah from those that are given in Second uh, uh, Kings chapter 24 on the same issue. And uh, what appears to be happening here is the numbers that we have here in, in Jeremiah probably refer only to uh, able-bodied men who survived uh, all of those. Those uh, of who were uh, 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 the, the people who were of the most value 
to the Babylonians, uh, though probably a much larger uh, number was, uh, was uh, total number was uh, deported. The small uh, number of people who, and sometimes you can read that and be surprised at the number of people who survived all of this and then went into captivity, that small number of the, the remaining captivities who were then carried away in, into Babylon uh, probably indicates to us the, uh, the destruction that occurred among the Jews by uh, both the slaughter of the Babylonians, also the famine within the city, the, the disease and the pestilence, and over the long months of, of that siege, as well as a very large number of people who probably fled the city into the surrounding countries for their own uh, lives. And, and uh, verse 31 through verse 34 is a very uh, picturesque, uh, if that's the right word, uh, way to, to close out the book. Uh, it's an expression of mercy on the part of Nebuchadnezzar toward uh, Jehoiachin, uh, one of the kings of Judah, the, the brother that had been taken captive prior to Zedekiah. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month on the 25th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Judah, in the first year of his reign, he lifted up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. So he feels uh, very uh, generous. He's a, a new king. He knows he's got power, and he wants to be gracious to the, these kings that have been conquered, and here specifically uh, uh, Jehoiachin, king of Judah, conquered by Babylon. He spoke kindly to Jehoiachin and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So he kind of made a practice of after a period of time, uh, he would uh, have his meal and uh, the royal meal, and he would bring these kings around to then eat, uh, eat the meal with him. It was a, uh, if you were, uh, had this kind of a place at the king's table, it meant that you were going to be fed for life and fed sumptuously. And to go to bed in those days with a full stomach was a rarity and it was a, it was a luxury. And so he gives him a prominent seat there uh, at the table, probably also uh, pr the provision of food uh, for his family. So Jehoiachin changed uh, from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life, for the remainder of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration uh, given him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death, uh, all of the days of his life. And so the book of Jeremiah closes out with this beautiful picture of grace being extended to uh, Jehoiachin, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm sure that all of it's intended to just be a, a microcosm of what God was going to do with Judah. Yes, they would go through a long captivity, a long imprisonment in the same way that Jehoiachin uh, had, but it would be followed by uh, royal honors and elevation, and in this case, uh, the royal honor and, and elevation uh, by the Lord himself. And so it closes with a, a bit of a happy ending and what is kind of a very, very sad book in many ways. And um, God loves happy endings if he's allowed uh, to uh, produce them and, and allowed uh, to grant them. No matter where we've been, what we've done, what we've seen, what we've been a part of, uh, there is a, a happy ending found in repentance and in, in the grace of God. Let me close our time in, in the book of Jeremiah with a, uh, a handful of observations here in terms of lessons. And just to allow them, uh, in, 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 in not to be clinical related to this, um, and it just be okay, that's lesson number one and lesson number two and lesson number three, but, but to allow the lessons of the book that we've invested such time in, to allow those lessons um, to impact our own hearts tonight before they leave them. It'd be awful to spend uh, the time that we have in the book of Jeremiah and then uh, not have learned these lessons from the book and then appropriated them to our lives. It certainly teaches us the seriousness of sin. 
and rebellion among uh, God's people. Uh, sin is very, very uh, serious stuff. I think that Jer- uh, James puts it probably the best when, in his description in James chapter 1, when he says of sin, let no one say that when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own di- uh, desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And that constant reminder that any sin that we allow to live within our life, the recognition, the very sobering recognition, that is working toward my destruction. It is working toward, first of all, the death of my relationship with God to destroy my spiritual intimacy with God, and then so often uh, working toward even our uh, physical uh, death and the importance to have a, a great fear of God and, and reverence for God related to allowing sin, as the children of Judah did, to have a long shelf life or any shelf life within our lives. And tonight, to allow this to search us in that way, if, if that's the case. It also speaks to us of the importance of repentance uh, when we recognize sin within our lives and to realize that disobedience or rebellion to God, it requires uh, repentance uh, and nothing less than that. And repentance means, in a New Testament sense, it means to have a change of mind about the direction that I'm going in, uh, a change of mind about what I'm doing, a change of mind that produces a change of direction. And, uh, And related to sin, I'm no longer going to follow this sin, this path of sin. I choose tonight to repent of it, and I'm going to go in the opposite direction. I'm going to go in God's direction. So no excuses, no blame shifting, no anything. I just repent of that sin. I make a decision tonight to do that. And then to realize, again, all of it so sobering, where a failure to repent leads that it always leads to God's judgment. It always leads to his chastening. Uh, It always leads to uh, captivity, always. And uh, God was patient with the southern kingdom of Judah, patient and patient and patient and patient and warned and warned and warned and warned. And then one day they crossed the line, and when they crossed that line, uh, that uh, the judgment was going to come. And to realize related to our own lives uh, that we can play around with sin and play around with sin and play around with sin. And then when God doesn't judge us immediately, we begin to think that we're special, that somehow this is a command for everybody else, but we can manage this sin in a way that nobody else can really uh, manage it, and God is winking and blinking and nodding related to all of it and all, and then uh, instead realizing God is being gracious to give us a a space to repent. And if we don't, then one day, just like Samson got up, you know, and he's going to deal with the Philistines again and he discovers that the strength is gone and that uh, judgment has has come uh, into place. There is a line uh, related to our lives that if if that line is crossed, then God's chastisement uh, does occur. There's a famous poem called The Hidden Line uh, that I speak, think thinks, uh, speaks powerfully to this. Let me read it to you. I know that at this point it can be hard to listen to something. It's only several pages. I'll be done with it in just a moment. And, but I, I like the poem because it speaks to something important. There is a time we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. Oh, where is this mysterious bourne by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How far may we go in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does uh, hope end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the skies is sent. uh, Ye that from God depart, while it is called today, repent and harden not your heart. A wonderful word uh, to take from uh, the book of Jeremiah. Another thing to look at here, and so, you know, just continue to give these a place within our hearts. 
the danger of religious self-deception. Religion was in high gear at the time that uh, the city was uh, in its final throes before it went in, into judgment. Religious activity was uh, uh, going on, uh, but it wasn't connected. Uh, the, it, it was just going to temple. It was just going to church, so to speak. It was the, they had basically compartmentalized a relationship with God, and, and that's what it was. And... and, uh, and and so there was the sacred, the secular, the sacred part of my life. As we go to temple, we offer the sacrifices and we do that. But the rest of, uh, of the week is entirely mine to define as I see fit. And as long as I do this over here, it'll fool God. He'll be satisfied with it. He doesn't care what kind of person I am uh, the rest of the week. And this is a temptation for us as Christians uh, even uh, yet today, that there's this and there's this, and it's completely a self-deception. Christianity is a relationship with God. And uh, it is a relationship that is to be current, it is to be real, uh, not only on Sunday or Wednesday or whenever it might be, but uh, 24-7. And then another lesson is to be reminded that the only place of safety for anyone is in a life of just simple obedience to the Lord. One of the great things about Going to the uh, coming to the end of a day and praying to the Lord and saying, Lord, um, you know, just search me. I've been in the world. A lot can cling to me. Is anything attached to me? Any sin in my life? And and uh, and if there is, make me aware of it now so that I can uh, just be uh, done with this. And because the the confidence that we have when we when we have that kind of a conversation with God and we're not under the conviction related to any sin uh, within our lives, there's that sense. That that I'm in a position that God can bless me, or that if something difficult uh, or uh, happens in my life, uh, even when I'm in that condition, to know that God is with me in his fullness, he's for me in his fullness, and, and I am safe because of, uh, of, uh, of uh, this obedience that I'm offering uh, uh, to him. The Bible, uh, this book also speaks to us of the fact that God wins in every situation and every circumstance, that his word is going to be proved true no matter uh, who believes it or who doesn't believe it. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is if the trends continue in the United States of America, uh, Christian services may be, uh, churches may be very small. They may be made up of scores of people rather than hundreds of people or thousands of people. But what people believe about God or think about God or his word or so forth, none of it matters. His, tr- his word is always true. It always comes to pass and uh, no matter what man thinks of it. And then I think, and in, in here we close with supremely, I think that the book teaches us that in the life of Jeremiah, that God will give us the grace to live faithfully for him, even in the midst of great, uh, great wickedness. And we see in Jeremiah, and again, when we, uh, as we began the book, we talked about Jeremiah and how it becomes one of the favorite books of the Old Testament for many people um, in a way that's different from, say, Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, when you ask people about the book of Isaiah, they say, I love the book of Isaiah. I love this verse, and I love this verse, and I love that verse, speaking prophetically of Jesus or whatever it might be. And uh, there's never this kind of deep affection that develops for Isaiah necessarily, but very strongly for the message. Jeremiah is very, very different. We love the message that he declared, but we develop a bond with him. We develop a relationship with him as we go through all of the highs and all of the lows of his life, being betrayed by his family, being betrayed by his own village, being betrayed and rejected by the nation and so forth. And you and I may live in a that very season in the United States of America where we are called to do a Jeremiah kind of life and ministry, where we live in a nation currently that is doing what Judah did, throwing off its godly heritage and all of the blessings of that godly uh, heritage and then moving toward a place where God would be forced to judge. And the book of Jeremiah may become very, very dear to us and even more so as time goes on as we draw encouragement from Jeremiah 
Jeremiah's life that this is the life that you that needs to be lived and that this Christian life can be lived not only within the paganism of the world but within the apostasy that is among uh, even God's people who claim uh, to know him and so there's so much to learn uh, here uh, from Jeremiah uh, in that in that vein Jeremiah was called to oversee the death of a nation and to watch it die needlessly day by day before his eyes because they would not turn from their sin. If that doesn't read like the daily newspaper for you, then please tell me what newspaper you're reading so I can subscribe to that uh, because I need something perky in my life at this point. But, uh, but this could very well be the thing that we're called to do as well is to watch, slowly watch the death of a nation with a rich godly heritage, all of it thrown away uh, out of uh, uh, the uh, intoxication and the addiction to sin and selfism and and, uh, idolatry. And so the lessons that are learned here uh, related to the book uh, invaluable to us. Let's stand together and we'll pray and we'll close in a song and then enjoy... Uh, refreshment and celebration of finishing the book here tonight as we do when we finish a a, a book of the Bible on Sunday nights to enjoy uh, Costco cakes out in the fellowship hall. So you say, why not uh, Costco cakes? And I I think it's just going to be Costco cakes, but um, you know, sometimes people get a little older and they want Costco cakes and and fruit. (laughs) Or What's that, what's that awful salad that they're making today, that green thing? Karen, what is it? Kale, a kale salad or something like that. Who could you bring out? We're going to celebrate with kale salad. And, uh, but uh, remember, when this whole tradition began, we were all like uh, 30 years old down on 10th and F, and, and uh, free cake was a big deal, and we were not interested in kale or uh, tangerines or anything else. It was Costco cake. And so we continue the traditions. It's harmless. Let's pray uh, tonight. Lord, thank you so much for these uh, weeks and months spent in the book of Jeremiah. And, uh, and it looks very much like uh, not only the nation that we live in, but it looks very much like uh, what we are going to need to become as Christians in order to be faithful to you. In, in this nation as we await your return, barring a revival. We hope for a revival, Lord. We pray for a revival. But what we're so encouraged with from this book is that through all of the highs and lows of Jeremiah, that you will be all of that to us in keeping us faithful, not only in our relationship with you, but faithful to your calling upon our lives, whatever the world becomes around us. And Lord, we thank you for that grace that we have experienced thus far in our relationship with you, and we look forward to experiencing it all the remaining days of our pilgrimage. And we thank you, Lord. We ask these things of you. We pray these things to you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.